Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Seven is your lucky number this week on the Warner Archive Collection podcast as we bring you seven new-to-DVD releases. We have one television series in which we're bringing you the eighth season of the FBI in color, starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. We're bringing you season eight. We will soon be bringing you season nine, but this week we're going to talk about season eight. And then we're going to go back in Warner Brothers history to the late 30s and the early 40s as the ascendancy of John Garfield's career was in full throttle. And we bring you six relatively early John Garfield films from 1939 to 41, following his breakthrough in Four Daughters. We have six movies that really define the Garfield character in an amazing way, and it will be interesting to talk about each one of them. We have Blackwell's Island and Dust Be My Destiny from 1939. We have Saturday's Children, Flowing Gold from 1940, and East of the River from 1940. And then we close out the Garfield sextet with Dangerous They Live from 1941. So there's lots to talk about the new releases we have from the Warner Archive Collection, and we also have letters to share with you and new picks from Warner Archive Instant, our subscription video-on-demand service that you can watch on PC, Mac, Roku, with your Roku stick, your iPad. You can use AirPlay to watch on your Apple TV. So go to warnerarchiveinstant.com to find out more and get your free trial today. But let's go back to our disc life and start out the discussions about the FBI Season 8, starring the recently departed and dear friend of the Warner Archive Collection, Mr. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. By this season, it's a machine. A pure 70s action FBI machine. It's just like a drama storytelling machine. The agents are in place. All the actors led by Ephraim Zimbalist are strong and they carry the through lines. And it really is sort of like an anthology show. When people think of the FBI, I think they think of like Mad Men 60s. And this season and the next season were not really seen very much. Is that right? Season 8 and season 9 were not as heavily syndicated as the previous seasons. Although, in general, the FBI was not heavily syndicated. Hour-long shows were harder to sell into syndication, period. Half-hour sitcoms were easy. The FBI had a stronger life in syndication because it was in color. So you had over 200 episodes to sell uh, into syndication. So it did have a longer life. It's only in the recent, let's say, past 15 years or so that the series totally disappeared until we came to the rescue to bring the series to DVD. So we're very grateful to have had that opportunity. And to be at season eight, you've got, as you say, the well-oiled machine without question, but Warner Brothers Television was back up and running with many series. For a while there, at the FBI was the only series being shot on the lot. And by this time, also, you had a lot of changes in television. You had the Norman Lear effect. You had All in the Family really changing the face of television. Sunday night, the FBI no longer had to go up against Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan was gone. There was a very different world beginning. This is the first season of MASH. And there's also a a bleed through from cinema Uh because you can see the effect of films like uh, Dirty Harry and Bullet because we have 
really spectacular car chases now. You have it's more bass and Wawa. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just... And the villains are oilier. That's yeah. probably the way, like, there's some... Specifically like, Dean Stockwell. Oh, that episode was fantastic. He's just... So just creepy. Creepy, slimy, and um, he does this great kind of invasion of space. So this is a six-disc <laughs> set with 26 episodes, and we've got a myriad of guest stars, as we always do, that are sure to impress. Dan, why don't you share well, with us? The, I mean, there's, the, like, the opening episode for this season uh-huh. is like a trifecta because you got David Soule mm-hmm. as the antagonist, and he's stalking Belinda Montgomery, <laughs> who is going out with Robert Urich. So it's just like... TV Future TV stars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, you also have established big screen stars. Well, as we said, we have Dean Stockwell, Eldred Mulhair is really good in this season. There's uh, William Wyndham's in it, John Anderson, Ross Martin, who we always talk about, Patrick Wayne, mm-hmm. Lara Parker, fresh from Dark Shadows, Martin Sheen. Again. Again. But in a different role. Different role. Sandra Locke. That's one uh, of the things I like about the FBI is you, if you sit with the series long enough, you'll see certain actors come back two or three times as guest stars in different roles spread over the nine-year run. Yeah. Cr- criminals, they all start to look alike after a while. And yet the mob is always Anglo. The show held up its high standards of Absolutely. excellent writing, excellent direction. Zimbalist is phenomenal. William Reynolds, Philip Abbott, they're really holding their own. So... The FBI is now available season eight. We will be bringing you season nine before year's end if all goes well, and we think it will because we're working on it right now. And at that point, we will have brought you the whole series, and that's always a very gratifying thing for the Warner Archive Collection to take a series that people wanted forever and to complete it. We did it with Night Court. We did it with Cheyenne. We did it with Harry O, which wasn't so hard since there were only two seasons. But Eddie's father. <laughs> Eddie's father, three. And that is our intention on series, which are ongoing. So there's a lot more we did with Maverick. So in any event, go to our website, warnerarchive.com. Order your copy of the FBI Season 8 today. You won't be sorry. Now we'll go back to 1939. Same studio, same sets. In oh, many cases. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because the Warner Brothers backlot hadn't changed very much over the years, and they kept changing it for the FBI. Well, they would change it for the various movies that John Garfield made at Warner Brothers. John Garfield was a contract player at Warner Brothers basically from 1938 until 1946. Then he left for a while. Then he came back for one picture. This is John Garfield post his success in Four Daughters, which was his breakthrough film. He had come from the stage, and he was making all sorts of films he would do as they told him to do. But you really see a through line, I think, through all of these films, and we'll discuss them in chronological order. Now, I have a quick question, but before I get there, my tangent, you mentioned the backlot. I would suggest people watch FBI and the John Garfield films at the same time as I, I did agree. because we, we did. your appreciation for the backlot's versatility because you will see the same location in an FBI episode and then in something like Blackwell's Island you'll be like oh those people know their craft I mean the, and those sets are still yeah. standing and meticulously maintained today Pretty Little Liars is full of these old sets no, and no. I, that's what I, I love about that show Warner Brothers at this time I noticed in the title cards and George, you may or may not have insight into it. Jack L. Warner in charge of production. Was that title card on all or were those on his special project films? 
At some point, they were on everything, okay. and at some time, they were on his special project films. But it was generally, you know, he had his name at the front of the films because he had a, a rather, and justifiably so, he was proud of uh, being in charge of production. You will look at Fox films of the era and see Daryl Evzanik in charge of production on Fox movies. You'll look at Universal movies from later times and uh, see the head of production put his name there. I mean, generally, studio executives don't have their names on films. And that's pretty much a, an industry policy. Irving Thalberg never allowed his name to be used on screen ever. Hmm. And it was only after his passing that the studio put his name on the good earth as a tribute to him because it was produced by him but released after he had died. Because there's a, a Paul Byrne, I remember a quote from him, like, uh, if you need your name on it, you probably shouldn't have the job. So, you know, you don't see Robert Evans' name on The Godfather. You don't see Alan Ladd Jr.'s name on Star Wars. But those movies came to be because they were the head of production or right. the head of the studios. And Jack ran the studio. The other brothers were in New York running the business end of things, but they didn't have much input into the creative side. The creative side of what went on here at Warner Brothers was Jack Warner. It was production executives like Hal Wallace mm. and later Jerry Wald and people like Henry Blanke. They were part of Jack's coterie and there was an A unit and a B unit. And these movies traverse both A, a and B. B. Because now, he did A pictures and B pictures. And it's really interesting seeing the emergence of the John Garfield character. Right. Yeah. Now, he was from the theater, but his acting style really seems very different than a lot of the people around because him. Because he came from the group theater, and he, which preceded the actor studio right. group of people well, at Lee Strasberg. It's like the line that I would draw would be from John Garfield to Paul Newman. John Garfield ushered in a new style and then later of course you had Montgomery Clift and then Marlon Brando and Paul Newman and the redefining of the male lead from you know here at Warner Brothers we had character actors like you know Jimmy Cagney wasn't right. Clark Gable right but I think you see in John Garfield a passing of the torch if you will from Cagney they typecast him in tough guy roles they typecast Edward G. Robinson in tough guy roles because of Public Enemy and Little Caesar, uh, respectively. So as those guys were wanting to expand what they were doing at the studio, they did not want to be typecast, and they fought very hard against it. Garfield, his battle was he wanted to still work on the stage. He was still very much a product of the theater and the New York theater. And there's still, to this day, a rivalry between New York theater and uh, we've, we've even talked yeah, about okay. this. You know, Matt has experience having worked in the theater when he was young in a producer's office, correct? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, so he's aware of that world. And you know, just, just last week I was listening to the radio and uh, people were talking about the factor of you know someone like James Franco going to Broadway mm -hmm. and doing Of Mice and Men and how he didn't get a Tony nomination because right. he was Hollywood. So there was a, you know, Hollywood looked to the stage to get its talent, but Broadway turned its nose down on Hollywood actors that would come to New York. 
And Garfield really wanted to be able to do both. And uh, he was a very, very intelligent man. And uh, he wanted to bring integrity to his craft. And he wasn't happy doing just, you know, your average grind him out 52 movies a year studio projects. He really wanted to be working on films that were more unique and special. And in this group of six films, you have typical studio product. Right. And then you have some exceptional cinema. But all of them are interesting because when he's on the screen, yes. you can't take your eyes yeah. off of him. And As we talk about the films going forward, some of the co-stars are really quite unique. So let's start with Blackwell's Island, 1939. This is what I would call a basic studio program. This is a very Warner Brothers movie. We got Stanley Fields as like a Wallace Beery type criminal, and we have a corrupt system, and we have a crusading reporter who has to get deep inside the corrupt system, which is the prison, in order to expose the corruption. But it's brisk. The character work is great, and Rosemary Lane is the co-star. Unlike Wallace Beery, though, Stanley Fields, you kind of feel like. Ah, uh, you're not such a bad mug. <laughs> now, this is based on a true story that so actually like happened. The Guardia's Raid, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was toned down for Hollywood. But what's interesting about this film is there is some unbilled contribution directorially from the man who really shepherded Garfield's screen debut in Four Daughters, and that is Michael Curtiz. So oh. he's uncredited, but he did direct a portion of this movie. And Curtiz really is adept at handling the tough guys. And as That's I understand funny. it, they punched this movie up because of John Garfield's rapidly growing stardom by bringing in Curtis and shooting more scenes with Garfield and adding them into the picture. Now, he wasn't really uh, part of the corruption. He's the exposer, so he's not in it as much in the beginning, but then his role becomes very pivotal. And when you have him and uh, Stanley Fields against each other as two types, that's when the sparks start flying. And I want to mention that all of these films have been remastered, and that's why they haven't been available before, because ah. the masters we had were not very good. We wanted to bring you better quality, and uh, the work has gotten into these movies, and they look much, much better than they ever have in previous incarnations. The next film is one of the more famous of the group, Dust Be My Destiny, this is really Garfield cementing, I think, his on-screen persona, tough yet vulnerable, and a captivating movie and an audience favorite. It did very well at the box office. This is almost like a prototype of the juvenile delinquent film. I mean, it co-stars two of the dead-end kids. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah right. Well, but this is... Who, but Garfield very much fits with being a Lower East Sider. He certainly fits in. He's but the oldest dead-end kid. Well, well yeah. and he did work yeah. with them yeah. in They Made Me a Criminal, which yeah. is not part of this group, but which has uh, fallen victim to a lot of unauthorized distribution. So there's not any plan at the present time for us to do anything with that movie. But it's out there. And my first exposure to both the Dead End Kids and John Garfield was in They Made Me a Criminal, huh. which holds the distinction of being a, a crime story directed by Busby Berkeley. So, really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he directed Yeah, that. well, he directed that's, all sorts of so films great. before he, uh, and this is right as he was leaving Warner Brothers and heading to MGM, but that's a digression. So Dust Be My Destiny really is the crystallization 
of the Garfield screen person. And if you're a fan of noir, you see seeds yes. of very, very deep seeds of noir in this film. Oh, I mean, yeah. it plays out in a non-noir way, but the middle of this film is very much noiry. Garfield is a guy thrown into a work camp, which uh, right. seems more like a slave labor center. Yep. And considering it's 1939, it does make it a little eerie. And it being John Garfield, he has a chip on his shoulder Absolutely. from a previous slight and term. And he falls in love with the daughter of the farmer that they're contracted to work for by the state prison. The evil farmer. Yes, and there's a fatal misunderstanding and he's on the run with the love of his life. And it includes a great scene, almost like reality TV. They get married for free, but it's part of a show. Part of a reality show, uh, like yeah. a, But like, because pe people would pay to watch people get married on stage and in return you would get married for free. And that was like The Bachelor to me. I, I just love that little moment. But there are a lot of great moments in this. It's a lot of fun and it's crimey-wimey. And one of the interesting things about this movie was it was originally supposed to have a tragic ending mm -hmm. and the studio was fearful that that would hurt the box office so they reshot the well, ending you to know, be somewhat happy. A lot of times, That's in fact, there's, there's a later film where I feel that the studio should have gone darker personally, but I think they made the right choice with this he, one. He went through the ringer in yeah. this. Yeah, you want, I mean, you know, how to guarantee box office failure is to have the audience walk out disappointed, and they wanted them to walk out happy, and indeed they did. The next film from 1940, speaking of happy, speaking <laughs> of happy, Saturday's Children is uh, Anne Shirley and Claude Rains co-starring with John Garfield in uh, the Epstein Brothers adaptation of a play by Maxwell Anderson. So you're dealing with a very impressive pedigree here. And uh, I love this movie. The, the script is this so is good. Also, Claude Rains, who I will watch in anything, but Claude Rains is so good and so he, sympathetic and so rooted in this film. He kind of steals it a little. Well, it's Claude Rains. I, yeah. <laughs> but great story. Really a very simple story, but a really engrossing one. The dialogue is great. The ensemble cast is great. I mean, you can see how it played out on the stage, but they definitely opened the story way up. It has, uh, especially like uh, the dramatic premise in the middle, because is, is where it feels very stagey, and that's where Garfield really comes out as Garfield. In the beginning, he's a wacky inventor with glasses, which is a little not Garfield. -y. And he's very quiet. And he's quiet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he falls in love with uh, Claude Rain's daughter, and they, they date and get married. And this film is really more about married life. The play is so famous. Uh, the kind of play that, that they do in high school, mm -hmm. acting classes, doing a monologue from Saturday's Children. Right. You know, it's kind of like dark at the top of the stairs. It's one of those kind yeah. of things that it, it's well known on, on that regard. Speaking of the stage, an actress who really burned brightly on the stage and had a difficult relationship with Hollywood was Frances Farmer. Mm. She made very few films and her life was brilliantly, her story uh, amazingly told on film in 1982 as Jessica Lange became Frances Farmer. Very much so, yeah. In the film Frances, which is a film that we do not own and I highly recommend. She didn't win the Best Actress Oscar that year uh -huh. because Meryl Streep won for Sophie's Choice, but they gave her the Consolation Prize of Best Supporting Actress for Tootsie. She's wonderful in Tootsie, but when you have two uh, amazing performances right. like that in one year. Yeah. But Frances Farmer had a very, very troubled life. She was primarily under contract 
to Paramount and yet did work at other studios. She did come and get it at Goldwyn. And she came to Warner Brothers to do Flowing Gold. And the gold in this story is indeed oil. And we've had lots of oil films. We've seen, and you know, there have been more recent oil films, you know, uh, There Will Be Blood. And this is a great tale of early oil. Of that same era, only this is quite a different. Yeah, no, this is a different. I'm just saying like the early days of oil are actually. The wildcatters. Yeah, inherently filmically interesting. But this one had a very special relationship triangle built around the flowing gold with Pat O'Brien mm-hmm. is the... Pat O'Brien, once again, playing the Pat O'Brien role. It's <laughs> the Pat O'Brien of Slim fame. Yeah. You know. yeah. What's really unique is to see Francis Farmer and Jordan Garfield, who have such roots in the stage, together on screen. That's what's made this so special. And people have been wanting to own this for years. And the, the prior master was almost unwatchable. So we now have something that's really uh, miles ahead of what we had. It flows like gold. It flows like gold and it looks gorgeous. And you really have actors at the prime of their craft in this motion picture. And I highly recommend it. It's a really good pulp. Root story, it, yeah. you know. It's a men's. He's adventure. on the lamb. Yeah, she's the boss's daughter. He's the guy who gives him a square chance, and they have a deadline to drill into the oil. Right now, to go across the country, we go back to New York in 1940. New York in the personification of the Warner Brothers New York Street. More Italians than Naples. More Greeks <laughs> than Athens. <laughs> they call attention right at the beginning to all the various ethnicities. That opening scene is so good. It's, it's they, really great. They literally like put you on a tour bus in 1927 right. as they're taking a tour of the Lower East Side. Okay, did you want to go on that tour? I sure did. This is the story of, let's call it, we can call this out, it's a pretty stereotypical depiction of an, an Italian mother for the time. Matteo, what do you mean? And but, the thing is that no one looked upon those not at the time. kind of uh, stereotypes as stereotypes of the time. No, no. Because there was not a sensitivity of portrayals of this and that. Not only did I love that portrayal, but I wanted to eat at that restaurant so terribly, oh, I, terribly I got bad. so hungry watching You're going to want to have some spaghetti at the beginning of this movie, that's for sure. And, oh, and the mother's played by Marjorie Rambo. That's right. And she has a son. And he's John Garfield. We begin, and there, there are a couple of juvenile delinquents, one of whom's an orphan, and an understanding judge gives them a second chance, and the mother of one of the delinquents adopts the second delinquent, and thus we have a the, judge. Uh, we have I can the, take a both of boys. Good brother, bad brother dynamic right. once they're adults. And Again, course, a very common theme yeah. in Warner Pictures. Yeah, and the, the good brother is played by William Lundigan, and of course, the bad boy is the bad boy John Garfield. You know, Mama, she provided a good environment for everyone, and everyone who comes into her influence well, Nick, changes. They Nikki all proves that the nurture worked. It's just JoJo's nature is bad. The following year, 1941, brought us John Garfield, Raymond Massey, and Nancy Coleman in Dangerously They Live, which rounds out this Garfield sextet and fills in a very important part of his filmography that was unavailable with the release of these films we have most of our john garfield selections available for people to see and from these films 
came later films where he would do amazing work, some of which are available from Warner Archive, like Fallen Sparrow, and of course, The Breaking Point, which we've talked about right. numerous times. Breaking Point's crazy. And uh, his phenomenal work in Nobody Lives Forever. We could go on yep. and on and on. But this is the early years period of Garfield at Warner Brothers, and working up against a great actor like Raymond Massey, who's just coming off his Oscar nomination for Abe Lincoln in Illinois. He had to keep his acting chops at their highest. Because I was watching this, I was like, this is a movie that should be remade. Because this plot is so engaging. Oh, yeah. Because it's Dr. Kildare versus Nazi spies. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And this is before we got into the war. Raymond Massey plays a doctor who is a little creepy. He's a little creepier than he will be for his uh, Dr. Kildare. He's certainly not Dr. Gillespie. Yeah, he's no Gillespie. So the reason there's a brain doctor is a young lady is in a car accident and has temporary amnesia. And John Garfield is the intern that is assigned to her care. Raymond Massey is the brain specialist, psychiatrist that's brought in to help assist. And then someone shows up who is her father, only she can't remember. And so the intern goes with her to her family residence to ensure her safety. And there's a Nazi spy ring. There's always Nazis in 1941. But it's great because it's... Well, not at every studio, but at Warner Brothers there were. And I think that's worth mentioning because we did not enter World War II until after Pearl Harbor in December 1941. Yet Warner Brothers was the first of the studios to actually deal with the Nazi issue in Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 1939. And And the the first studio to pull out of Germany. That's right. Uh, In 1941, there were other major studios that after Pearl Harbor and war was declared, they closed down and moved out of Germany, but not until they absolutely had to. Let's Uh, just say. Warner Brothers had the integrity to pull out a lot sooner and say, you know, to hell with Hitler. We're going to make the stories that we're going to make and tell the world what's going on. It's true. And and you could say that Warner Brothers was maybe the first studio to discover what amazing villains Nazis make (laughs) and still make to this very day. In any event, Dangerously They Live is a very austere, taut drama with twists and turns and revelations that are riveting. And Garfield gives an excellent performance. Everybody does. It's first-rate Garfield, first-rate Warner Brothers. And all six of these films warrant purchase and ownership on your shelves as part of your video collection. So Blackwell's Island, Dust Be My Destiny, Saturday's Children, Flowing Gold, East of the River, Dangerously They Live, all starring John Garfield. All wonderful new remasters available on DVD for the first time. Please please go to our website and check them out. We know you're going to love to own them. And there are preview clips where you can see how wonderful they are. Now, we record these podcasts in advance of the actual day that they are posted for your free listening pleasure. And very often, as we've discussed on prior podcasts, our schedule is subject to change. And sometimes we'll talk about a film on an earlier podcast and the day the podcast hits availability that film is not yet available and such was the case with our blu-ray release of the 1955 vincent minnelli musical classic colorful extravaganza kismet but today the day that we put up this podcast which is june 10th 2014 
Kismet <laughs> is available for shipping and delivery to your doorstep. So we want to just call out this wonderful, wonderful Blu-ray disc with an enchanting, lovely musical score. It's available. Put in your orders now. You'll be glad you did, especially if you're a fan of the Freed unit and you like watching Dolores Gray. And get them Fantastic. while they're hot because they sell out quickly. They have been. It's been really great. I mean, it's just been well Not received. Not the consumer who sees the sold out sign. Uh, well, it'll be there for you. Just yesterday, we made uh, Longmire seasons yeah. one and two available on Blu-ray. And by the end of the day, we were sold out. That's amazing. And we made a lot of copies. So Longmire, Blu-ray, now available, seasons one and two in a six-disc collection. And Kismet. Today, now available on Blu-ray, glorious color, fantastic 5.1 DTS audio, don't miss it. And speaking of don't miss, don't miss Warner Archive Instant, our streaming video on demand service in which we make available hundreds and hundreds of movies that you can't see anywhere else, some of them in HD, and hours and hours of television programming. And we're always adding new things to Warner Archive Instant, which you can view on your PC, your Mac, your Roku, you can use your Roku stick on your Roku to watch it on your, your big TV. And you can use your iPad to watch Warner Archive Instant. And you can use AirPlay and your iPad to watch a Warner Archive Instant through your Apple TV. And a lot of our content is in HD 1080p. So WarnerArchiveInstant.com is where you can go to get your free trial if you're not already a member. And each week on these podcasts, we try to let you know some of the special things that are available in the service that deserve a shout out. Gentlemen, your choices. I, I just want to start because the film I'm about to talk about has a, a lot more to do with computers and the instant service than I think culture at large will generally give it. The film is Hot Millions from 1968. It was co-written and stars Peter Ustinoff. It has a wonderful role by Bob Newhart, and I actually got to see this in the theater, and Bob Newhart was there and gave a little speech about it. It is a hacker kind of comedy, uh, not, not really a thriller, crime caper comedy. And the premise of it is so wonderful because it is so prescient of today because Peter Ustinov plays a, a thief. And this hack is still being done. He plays a thief. He's in jail. And when he's let out of jail, he's told by the cops like, well, we've got this new technology now and we can track down, you know, typical criminals because everything's on co now on computers. And so he gets a brilliant idea. He gets out of prison and he takes computer classes and then enters the world of business to start hacking computers and making more money than he ever believed. And he does so without the use of a number two pencil <laughs> and a punch card or a hanging chad. But this is a great, wonderful so film. Funny. Uh, Maggie Smith, right before she earned her Best Actress Oscar for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, is the leading lady in this film opposite Ustinov. And Ustinov was quite a character recently in our recent release of Lady L, yeah, Lady which L. he also directed. And his character is just 
adorable in this yeah. movie. You just have to love him. Yeah. You know, we don't usually love criminals, but this is a criminal you got to love. Peter used to love. You know, like sort of in larger, broader pop culture, I, I don't know if he's as famous as like, uh, you know, Peter Sellers or something. But Not you, at all. If you like Peter Sellers comedy, if you like Newhart, I would say you got to give this movie a he chance. He did not have, Peter Sellers had the Pig Panther films to right. keep his legend alive long after his passing. Peter Ustinov lived to be to a ripe old age and yet was playing old older parts when he was With a young, young man. Yeah. Right. Quo Vadis, he was a young man and he was playing That's you right. know much older characters. So he was also a delight when he'd be on talk shows. I remember loving seeing him when he'd be on, uh -huh. you know, Carson or Merv Griffin or whatever. He was a wit. And he was respected for his versatility and his brilliance. And Hot Millions was a modest box office success upon its release in 1968. But it it was too sophisticated for its time. And it's an it, excellent choice, it, Matt. The computer hacking scam that he creates in it, people still use that scam today. And I if you want to own this movie. That. Oh, I know. Dan, I had to reuse it, okay. just like how people reuse the scams. I had to reuse your line. There we go. And if you want to own this movie, we want to remind you that it is available yeah. on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. So, Dan, your pick. I go with Raymond Massey from disc to stream, Dr. Kildare season one. I know we've been talking about Dr. Kildare, and I've certainly, you know, worked on the DVD. So these are episodes I've seen, but they're in high def now on instant. We remastered them in HD for our DVD release, but being able to see them streaming in HD from the HD masters that we created is revelatory because yeah. there's, they come alive as HD does like I, no one And else. it's your chance to see Dr. Kildare as literally no one has ever seen it before. You I, can count the arm hairs on his yeah. own. Oh, you when, can see the sweat on Shatner's brow. I remember with this one seeing a Blu-ray test disc back when you guys were remastering it going into a room and I think George you were like you have to see this show in Blu-ray and this is way before the streaming service and it was incredible and there's like wow how could we you know get people to see this and now this is the and movie. right now there aren't blu-rays of dr kildare we're releasing them as dvds because yes. yeah. making blu-rays is a very difficult time consuming and very expensive process and no one should tell you anything otherwise but maybe someday these will be on blu-ray let's hope that, that we can make that economically feasible but you can but see them on right instant. now on instant yeah. streaming television shows is a wonderful thing because you can binge watch episodes Although and this is a season with over 30 episodes the theme song will get trapped in your head oh. but it's jerry goldsmith so can you blame him my pick is also something that was created for television that is also available on DVD from Warner Archive Collection, but is now streaming in HD on Warner Archive Instant. And this is the documentary miniseries from the David Wolper production company in association with MGM Television. This was a television event in the early part of 1968, and it was really the first time that mass pop culture was facing and examining on television with austere sincerity the horrors of Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. The rise and fall of the Third Reich was a multi-million selling nonfiction book by William L. Shirer 
MGM bought the rights to the book to make as a narrative film. And they held on to the rights for several years before they realized that there was no way they could film this story effectively, that the best use of the material would be to create a documentary. And uh, Xerox, which at the time was, I guess, what Apple is now. It was one of these kind of companies that was you know, forward thinking in technology. And they sponsored this as a three night event on ABC. And Wolper collaborated with MGM to tell the story of the rise and fall of the Third Reich of Nazi Germany of Adolf Hitler. Richard Basehart narrates the program, which is in three one hour segments. But what really gives one pause is the fact that the war had only been over 23 years when this was made, and there are a lot of participants on the Nazi side as well as on the British and American side. There are a lot of interviewees who aren't elderly. Right. They're of maybe middle to later middle age who talk about, you know, their involvement in the war. And it isn't like watching documentaries that were made in the 90s or even today where they deal with things in a much more graphic way, but the amount of people who are left to tell the stories and to tell the tale are few and far between. There were many, many people available and many, many years went into this production to create it as the event that it was. It was given a theatrical release internationally in a somewhat truncated form, (laughs) but this is the complete documentary spread over three parts, and it is streaming in HD on Warner Archive Instant. So I heartily recommend The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, all the parts, look for the red cover icon on our website or on your Roku or on your iPad, and you will be very, very moved and riveted by the filmmaking because it's really a, an excellent piece of work of its time. So let us move to the portion of our program where we hear from you, the listeners to oh. the podcast, who send us letters. And if you want to send messages to us, letters, preferably in crayon, where should people send them, at? Well, they should send them to the Warner Archive podcast B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. Our first letter is from a a large manila envelope, and this is from Arizona, where they wrote Warner Archive Podcast, but then a little carrot and wrote in collection. But it did get to us, so that apparently worked. Hey, Warner Archive casters. I noticed on Leonard Malton's blog that you gifted him a Warner Archive instant subscription, and he loved it. Ever since I have subscribed, I have been using his movie guide to direct me to what movies to see. Enclosed is a list I have compiled of the current films on the instant service with their Leonard Maltin rating. He has been my muse for movies since 1982, and I have a goal to see all of the 4-3-5-3 star movies I can. The lightly colored ones on the list are the films I have seen. The ones with the one are the ones I have seen on the instant service, which of As This Writing were 92. I would like to ask you to look at the 1.5 to 1 star movies and let me know which ones you would say, hey, Leonard is wrong. You should definitely see this movie. My plan is once I've seen all the 4 to 3 or 5 to 3 star movies, 
And if you select others, I will cancel my service and start watching Doctor Who on Netflix. <laughs> so recommend some lower rated films so I will stay subscribed. Ha ha, just kidding. As long as you keep putting on new movies, I will be an instant addict. Keep up the good work. I love the podcast. Can be from San Luis, uh, Rio, Colorado, Mexico. And we've got this uh, multi-page list with a lot of numbers, but these are uh, this is an impressive uh, document. In full disclosure, Leonard Walton has been uh, a friend of mine since I was 11, and he's one of my uh, closest friends. And he started writing his book on TV movies in 1969 and continues to update it yearly and had to relegate, if you will, Classic films, uh, films made before the mid-60s and earlier, most of them are now in his classic movie guide because people keep making mo more movies every year that his book kept getting thicker and thicker. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, and there are some films that I think are masterpieces that Leonard may list with a star or a star and a half or a bomb. Since he's been writing the book for so long, he'll sometimes go back and revisit a film and change the rating because with time, it gives you a different perspective of things. Not every single title on our list is a four-star movie. We may have a three or a two and a half or a three or a three and a half, but the point is everything is there for someone. And he may think Snow Devils is a bomb, but we think differently. <laughs> and Snow Devils isn't actually on the service right now. It was, but it will be back. But the point of it is, is that everybody has their own opinion and uh, I would heartily urge you to use Leonard's guide as a guide, but to take our word for it that the films and television programs in Warner Archive Instant are highly curated and chosen for your viewing entertainment. Somebody else's Babbitt may be another man's Batmite. Very good. <laughs> I like I that. I gotta remember that go. one. But I mean, you know, in the podcast, there's a reason why there are three of us. And some of that is that we each bring something to the table when we see the same movies and there are things when we talk about a film and talk about what interested us, you know, there can be different things. Right. You know. So like both of you guys like Batmite. I don't. <laughs> right. You, know, yeah. you guys both like Gazoo. I don't. But we're all entitled to our opinion. I like Shaggy. I well, do. but you know, like Hot Millions is one that some people may not think that's a great comedy. I love it because it's a hacker comedy. Well, I think if people don't like Hot Millions, well, yeah, that's they, a their IQ is okay. probably below but a certain you, level. But you see, I'm just, I just threw that out because we were just talking about that one. You know, you know. If you'd rather watch Bloodsport, you may not want Hot Millions. But there is but something like there for everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think you have another letter to share yes, with us. Yes, we don't certainly you? do. This is from Laura, who works on Laura's Miscellaneous Musings, the uh, movie blogger. The movie blogger. She wrote us a, now I can see it is a handwritten letter. Dear Warner Archive, one of my favorite discoveries last year was your three film set of Westerns starring George O'Brien and leading lady Virginia Vale. Me too. She wrote in script, by the way. That's why I'm sounding hesitant. The Marshal of Mesa City, in particular, is a model of economical but creative B-movie making with a good script and supporting performances by Henry 
Brandon. Henry Brandon. Who's Henry also Brandon known as Henry Kleinbach. Ah, uh, O'Brien. Who the evil Barnaby in <laughs> Babes in Toyland. I like when people write in script because it's challenging. O'Brien and Vale are a charming team, and O'Brien's sunny personality is very appealing. I can't get enough of his westerns. Will you be bringing out another set of his other three films with Vale? Bullet Code, Stage to Chino, and Prairie R- Raw or Row. I'd love to have any of his westerns. A set of the three he made with the rain day would be great too. But I especially hope to get the rest of the O'Brien Vale films to complete my collection. Thank you also for Tim Holt and the O'Brien and now my go-to western actors for well-made upbeat B-westerns. Love them. Best wishes, Laura of Laura's Miscellaneous Musings. P.S. Hi, Matt. And a smiley face <laughs> next to that. Because we, we've so. chatted on the tweeter. Any but answer? despite okay. that, I will answer this letter. <laughs> uh, and just as Tim Holt was the reigning king of uh, Westerns at RKO in the uh-huh. 40s and early 50s, George O'Brien uh, took the uh, mantle in the late 30s, and Tim Holt actually got his start in a George O'Brien Western. So there will be more... George O'Brien RKO Westerns coming from Warner Archive in the future. The RKO library was not very well taken care of by RKO. They melted down a lot of original negatives so they could have the silver nitrate content. Cool stuff like that. So RKO films are a challenge for us due to film elements and that is why we can't always make everything available right away and there are some very famous RKO titles not George O'Brien Westerns, but major releases from the studio that we haven't been able to release yet because the elements were cut or we don't have good elements to work from yet. That for Saint movie, the Saint New York movie, where is that? You know, well, we don't have good materials to work from yet, but we will. We scavenge the world looking for them. So I don't want to say off the top of my head immediately that those three films that the young lady has written about are definitely on their way, but these are the kinds of things that we research very carefully and put together to the best of our ability, and I can assure you that there will be another George O'Brien DVD collection probably in 2015, probably in the early part of the year. We don't give official dates because we never know exactly when things are going to happen. We can say certainly it will not be released in 2010. And that about wraps up this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast, but fret not, we will be back next week with new exciting announcements about what's being added to the Warner Archive Collection on disc, as well as what's being added to Warner Archive Instant Streaming. So on behalf of the Warner Archive, I am George Feltenstein. I'm Matthew B. Patterson. I don't want to be a ghost at the feast. It's Jojo Lorenzo. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive Collection podcast.